1: radio on time on target very excited to have peter singer or pw singer on with us i don't know which i should refer to you as i thought was under pw so let's do that that All works right? pw singer because i know on, on twitter you're peter w singer so i'm not you know giving anything away here <laughs> exactly. uh, but the book is like war the weaponization of social media uh, pw singer is also a senior fellow at New America, which I'm actually interested to get into and, and hear about what uh, New America is exactly. Uh, but we're excited to talk about the book. And this is pretty cool that you co authored this book, came out very recently and was sent to us. Uh, Jack read it cover to cover, and I'm excited to dig into it. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, really a pleasure, Peter. Uh, and uh, I also have your, your previous book, uh, Ghost Fleet, on my bookshelf, and uh, I have yet to read it. I'll, I'll fess up to that, but I want to. Um, well, especially. I was going to
2: thank you until you added that part.
0: <laughs> well, I, I did read this book. You know, we take a, a certain amount of pride in actually reading the books of the authors that we have on the show, and we try to make it through I- as many of them as we can. Um, and I, I, re- I found this book to be very interesting. It's a. It, it really encompasses like the history of um, the communications mediums, you know, and you you went back to the printing press and wire uh, cables. Um, The first transatlantic cables and and then talk about the weaponization of social media and how it can be used to propagandize how states can use it to propagandize other states or how states can use it for uh, internal suppression in their own countries. Uh, So it's a a very interesting kind of top to bottom history of a uh, really an emerging subject that we're really just trying to come to grips with, I think, here in the United States. Um so the, the I guess the first question I want to start off with although this isn't covered in your book because it's it's happening in real time is um, we're going into midterm elections. Uh, we're seeing the headlines that there could be meddling in these elections like there was in 2016. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how things have changed since 2016 or, or, or any new trends you're seeing, any new actions that are being taken um, perhaps by foreign governments or by our own government to protect the, uh, the sovereignty and the validity, I suppose, the, the legitimacy of our internal elections.
2: Sure. So first, thanks again for having me on. Really appreciate it. Uh, So the the book, the title of it is Like War. And like war, uh, if you think of cyber war as the hacking of networks, like war is about the hacking of the people on the networks through a mix of likes And lies driving ideas viral and uh, it covers everything from the use of this by organizations like Isis to Russian disinformation operations to how it was a secret sauce for the Trump campaign to um, how we're seeing it used by celebrities like Taylor Swift and the like Um, in many ways it's uh, we're finding that social media, it's not just the nervous system of the modern world and we use for everything from dating to business marketing to you and I um, having this conversation and then posting it up on YouTube and the like, it's also become a battlefield. Uh, And what's um, fascinating about that battlefield is you have these wildly diverse actors who end up using almost the same exact tactics. So you have Taylor Swift, and Janae Hussein, who was ISIS's top recruiter, operating in much the same way, because online their goal is the same, even though they have very different real-world goals. And um, as you know, we talk about in the book, it's not just about winning the web; it allows you to win your battles off the web. And you know, the examples range from how you can use it to win an election to how ISIS uses it to win the first battle of Mosul and the like. Um, So to your question about, you know, what played out in 2016 and then what's playing out right now in 2018 is that uh, obviously we saw a um, pretty massive campaign uh, that was conducted by Russia. Um, We were not the first target of this. Uh, Again, they were using very similar tactics against um, the Ukrainians um, in Brexit. Estonia. And, you know, very much a sort of bit of American arrogance. Well, no, that couldn't be done to us. And it was. Um the campaign the details of it have you know kind of dribbled out over time. Um it the data now shows that it was much, much bigger than I think most people appreciate. So as an example, the um Russian uh false information that was pumped out on Facebook. Over 146 million Americans saw it in their Facebook feeds. That's half the population. Um, And that's just Facebook, if you're looking at um, content on Twitter, on Instagram, et cetera. And again, much like ISIS, much like a good marketer for a new movie, they moved across the platforms where they would um, use Reddit to uh, push out ideas, but then move the, the images over to another space. And um it was incredibly cheap uh at least the the latest information it's that um the annual budget for it among the Russian operation was about twelve million dollars um as you all know the Pentagon you know sneezes out twelve million dollars <laughs> um on a, on a, on a on a slow day um but effective um and we can have a debate about you know did it swing the election that that's for the historians um What we do know is that the attackers think it worked because they're back at it. Yeah. They never stopped. They're addicted to um, the success. And we've the, seen uh, examples um, popping up into uh, – and this is, again, one of the, the key tactics is that they're jumping into other conversations, trying to leverage them to their own ends. So we've seen the Russian disinformation campaigns um, try and wedge into everything from the uh, protests in Charlottesville to uh, the controversy over um, uh, protests during the NFL anthem uh, to um, uh, Nike boycott. Uh, to uh 2018 election. Um, Anti-vaxxers. And, uh, so it's continuing. But what's important about it is other actors are out there watching and learning and saying, hey, that worked for them. We can do it, too. And so we've seen it pop up into everything from the um, Brazilian election campaign that's going on right now to the Mexican election to we've seen domestic actors learn from these tactics and apply them over. Uh, So the Kavanaugh hearing, uh, as an example, the Supreme Court um, uh, justice hearing, we saw both sides of that debate using the very same what we call like war uh, tactics to try and win their real world battle. And the reason, again, is because... People think it works, and frankly, I'm biased, but I would say it does. The data shows that it does work. Um, Now, okay, what do we do about it? What's government doing about it? Um, I could give kind of a a longer answer. But basically, the challenge right now is that the United States may have been the nation that invented the internet – but we're the nation that the governments, and particularly militaries around the world, look at and say, don't let what ha- has happened yeah. uh, to America happen to us. We're the, we're the example of what not to do. Um, so if you look at you know measures that the Baltics have put into place, et cetera, they'll cite, look at what happened to the Americans. This is why we're doing X, Y and Z. So there is a greater awareness of these campaigns. Um we're even weaving them into our own operations. So, you know, particularly to the special operations community, there's a really interesting um, back and forth that we play with in the book of um, how ISIS was using certain tactics in taking over Mosul that surprise us. And it's part of the story of of how they defeat a much larger force. But when it comes time a couple years later for us to take back Mosul. We're using many of the same tactics. We've been watching and learning them, even using some of the tactics the Russians were using against our election. So there's this kind of learning process that's going on. But overall, when it comes to overall strategy and policy, uh, particularly beyond the military, we're not yet dealing well with it. The same um, uh, process has played out at the companies. Um, I, I liken it to uh, the companies have gone through the stages of grief. Um, they were initially in denial at what was playing out on their networks, that their networks had become these kind of war zones. Now and, – and you know, you can see this like Zuckerberg immediately after 2016 is saying, you oh, it's a, quote, pretty crazy idea that um, we could have had this, these problems of fake news, disinformation, and even more that it could have influenced people's votes. And what's ironic is um, he's saying that at the exact same moment that Facebook is advertising to political campaigns, that Facebook is the best place to influence someone's vote. And they've got all the data to back it up. Um, so he goes from saying, you know, it's a pretty crazy idea two years ago, to now uh, Facebook has created a, quote, war room to try and manage this problem. Um, Zuckerberg describes himself as being in a, quote, arms race against Russian disinformation campaigns. But it kind of points to, um, again, one of these sea changes we talk about in the book of um, some of the most important actors in war and politics right now are a handful of tech inventors who basically the policy changes that they decide on Facebook, or on Twitter, tilt the battlefield one way or the or other. And They change. were kind of tilted yeah. to um, advantage uh, disinformation warriors, um, terrorist groups. Now we're trying to get them to tilt it back. But you also get these um, really fascinating challenges of should they have that power or not? So I'll end on a great illustration of the change. Um, For several years, Facebook basically ignored how it was being used as a space, not just a call for um, mass killings in Myanmar, but to coordinate around it. And, you know, this played out. But then a couple of weeks ago, Facebook said, "You know what? Um, The generals who are the leaders of Myanmar, you're kicked off Facebook." And this is notable because in Myanmar, Facebook pretty much is the internet. It's everyone. It's it's not uh, how you're using multiple different. It's it's all funneled through that. And so basically, a private company just decided to make it more difficult for a nation's leaders to speak to their citizens but i would argue for very good reasons because the leaders were calling for mass killings but it just shows kind of the crazy changes that have played out in a very short period of time when you circle back you know zuckerberg invents facebook basically um as a means originally for students to rate who was hot or not and now they've got this
1: power and in politics there's this great meme too of that where it says like when you created a uh you know, system for to to find out you know who was like a hotter girl, but you've influenced to election and you know or, or you know I, I don't remember what it exactly says, I, but it really it's it yeah. where
0: Zuckerberg's got like his hand in his face. He's like, oh my god, what have I done? <laughs> um, no, I, I think there's a, a fascinating subject, and I, I'm glad that you kind of um, put it together in in a in a readable format rather than you know trying to I think people trying to scoot around the internet and read you know previous work that you or others have done try to piece it all together on their own. one thing that I, I think that you put your finger on in the book, which is interesting, is that some of these uh, you know, foreign state actors exploit the freedom that we have in the Western world, things like freedom of speech, um, freedom of expression, to use these as vehicles to propagandize the American public. And it, it seems that it's something that as Americans, we're very naive about, that we, it, we have this um, impression that people out in the world are genuinely good actors overall. Um, we, we don't have our, our skeptics hat on when we view some of this information. I, I was wondering if um, you had any conclusions about why why and if you think Americans are particularly susceptible to this type of propaganda, or, or is it, this just human nature across the board?
2: So first, you know, I wanted to thank you for kind of pointing out that, that idea of the approach of the book. One of the things that we tried to do is um, – not just tell the story. So you know, every chapter begins with a a fascinating story, an interesting character they're like. Because that's actually one of the lessons of what works in this space is is the power of narrative, and mm-hmm. it's um, in turn, uh, frankly, why a lot of our own um, campaigns. Uh, haven't done well compared to, say, what ISIS or Russia has been putting together. We've forgotten the power of narrative. So we tried to have that in the book. And it also just reflected the way we researched it, where um, we went around interviewing uh, all the key players. And from them, you get these really fascinating stories. Um, you know, what is the creator of the Internet? Think what's happened to his baby. Um, what is... Uh, 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 someone, uh, you know, everything from an uh, a an, uh, line officer in the military all the way up to generals to extremist group recruiters to um, reality stars, uh, you know, what do they all think about what's played out in this? Um, and we tried to be careful to, and this goes to the core of your question, there's a lot of pessimism surrounding both kind of social media in general right now, but in particular, how America is doing at it. Um, And we tried to, every time we talked about a phenomena, talk about both the good and the bad side of it. Talk about a good guy using it to win their wars, but also here's how a bad guy is using it. Um, A good example is... uh, this idea of, um, you know, one of the changes that social media has brought in particular to, I think, the operating space uh, for your audience is um, when you have this combination of all these sensors out there um, and everyone able to share on social media, it's essentially uh, ended um, Secrets, uh, you know, a great example would be the bin Laden raid. It was supposed to be highly classified. And yet you had a um, Pakistani cafe owner who was <laughs> up late at night in Abbottabad. He hears the helicopters coming in. And what does he do? The new natural thing. He goes on to social media and complains. But his complaints <laughs> about one helicopter, second helicopter, first explosion, second uh, explosion, they double as these like live battlefield reports um, and, you know, I've been uh, involved more personally in examples of this where we had to go to, you know, tell people in SOCOM, hey, this operation that you think is super secretive in Syria or in Libya, you know, here's where people are talking about it online.
1: Can, um, can I tell you what, the craziest thing in terms of bin Laden raid? I, I swear to you, and I'm no, I know I'm not the only person who had this experience. I learned about the bin Laden raid when, when it happened on Twitter from Tom Green the comedian Tom Green, and he was (laughs) tweeting about it before Fox News, before CNN, before MSNBC. I don't know how he was privy to it. I'm sure someone tweeted about it that he was following, but like that just shows the absurdity of social media that, that you know, that's who you were learning this from. Some guy who was like a popular comedian in the late nineties, early two thousands before any news network via Twitter. So there, you know, there
2: was some kind of chain of connection between, um, the original, the, cafe uh, owner. the, the guy who was on the scene and just basically enough people retweeted and then it spins out. Um, so you have this sort of example of an end to secrecy. And on one hand, you can say, wow, this, you know, unveils operations. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, I don't like that. On the other hand, we tell the story of um, a group of volunteer uh, kind of work from home Sherlock Holmes. They're online detectives who use social media to um, track down War crimes that wouldn't otherwise be detected. There, for example, the team that uh, proved that Russia was part of um, that Russia shot down the airliner over Ukraine uh, a couple of years ago, killing uh, 298 civilians. Um, so you get this like wonderful back and forth that comes out of this. Um, now, uh, the you know your question though was like, why has it been so bad for the U.S. Right. and um, I think usually this is not just a particularly American phenomenon, but maybe we're a little more prone to it is when things go bad uh, with technologies and policy, it's usually a combination of two things, arrogance and ignorance, arrogance. Um, it might be arrogance. This couldn't happen to us the way we talked about, you know, this may be something that we see um, hitting other nations, but it couldn't happen to us. Or um, this may be being used to fight against other nations, militaries, but we don't have to pay attention to it. And again, all the phenomena we we talk about this in the book, um, you know, it, it had a history to it. Um, you know, Things were playing out against us in 2016 were happening earlier. Things that ISIS uh, was doing in 2015, 2017, etc. We were seeing Hamas do that to the Israelis back in earlier periods. So there's first kind of an arrogance of um, this couldn't happen to us. There's also a little bit of arrogance among the technology creators. Of course the thing I create is going to be used for good. Not going, okay, how might bad actors misuse it? And then you have really what the book is trying to um pop is the side of ignorance if these technologies have created a set of new rules of the game new rules for how you operate new rules for the nature of secrecy new rules for how you win battles etc then we better learn those new rules and the book tells the tale of how the people that understand the rules whether they are isis or taylor swift They're using that to win their wars, and in turn, the ones who don't understand the rules, they're the ones getting their clocks cleaned. And that is, um, again, something that uh, we've, I guess, you know, we need to catch up. And you can see that in everything from u.s senate hearings where senators are flailing and you know i mean you may see the hearing where they were interacting with mark zuckerberg yeah. and just you know showing off how poorly they
1: understood well, we've face spoken about that before to, just embarrassing yeah,
2: but also to you know examples that have um really flummoxed the uh the special operations community um so like from conversations with people um in this field they'll talk about um There's a very different way that they've approached messaging that uh, essentially, you know, we'll spend days and days creating PowerPoints to find that one perfect message that's targeted at the wrong person both of which are not how you win in this space. You, 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 you got to do it quickly. There's not one perfect message. You have to proliferate it out widely, and you're not trying to go after that one individual. It's about operating on scale. But so I'd have these kind of conversations with people in the community, and they'd say, we go in believing that we will lose the battle of the narrative. And the battle of the narrative, particularly when you're talking about counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, that's the battle that, might matter most. That's the battle where um, it really will decide uh, not just the adversaries recruiting, but the interactions with the local populace and the like. And we're going into these situations. Again, this is a complaint from um, folks that I've met with. Their complaint is that they believe they're going in on the losing side. And so we've got to understand
0: the new rules to remedy that. Well, aren't there also a lot of legal and policy restrictions as far as how the U.S. military... Uh, goes about this sort of, you know, we can use the term strategic messaging or propaganda. I guess it all depends on your point of view, but there's things like the uh, Schmidt Mund Act, I believe, is one of the main ones that is. Uh, it actually applies to the State Department, I believe, but the but DoD accepts it as a norm uh, that if we attempt to do some sort of strategic messaging on the internet, that there's no guarantee that American citizens, one in turn, see that uh, quote unquote propaganda and be influenced by it.
2: So there are definite um, challenges in terms of kind of uh, laws that were set up for um, a different era, um, policies that haven't caught up to this new kind of technology. Um, You mentioned one on the external messaging side. Um, One that's made us uh, particularly vulnerable on the internal messaging side is how um, we handle uh, political commercials. Um, It's not – perfectly but it's regulated in radio and tv uh on social media uh political ads are regulated in the same way that skywriting is that is with like the smoke that comes out of the plane they're actually regulated under the very same law and of course social media does not like disappear and that's it and it's only seen by that one person there it proliferates it's more wide and it's more influential than, um, uh, you know, um, TV or radio ads right now. So there's a lot of policy and legal kind of catching up that needs to go on. Um, But I will, you know, I'm going to push back at you in some way. There's often complaints, particularly within the military, at, you know, we can't do X, we can't do Y. The reality is often the things that prevent us from doing X and Y are not law, it's internal culture. Mm -hmm. Um, it's an internal bureaucracy. It's sticking to an old doctrine,
0: failure of imagination.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then there's another thing where, um, let's just admit there are some things that we do in secret squirrel land that are, uh, different than, um, what we complain about. So, uh, you know, the example of, um, we I, I can say it maybe you can't, but you know there are examples of um, contracts put out by the US military to allow one person to control multiple social media accounts simultaneously under right. false personas. That's Persona basically ability, the Russian man. disinformation model. We've just learned how to copycat them. Um, uh, we do it bureaucratically. We put out a contract for it. We were just using it. Um, These are among many of the lessons learned kind of more recently. This was for the CENTCOM AOR. So, you know, there's some things we do in Secret Squirrel Land that uh, wouldn't um, uh, that that are not, you know, kind of, oh, there's nothing that we can do in this
0: space. Uh, Things things may have evolved, but I believe actually the FBI has done the best job with a persona building, um, probably better than the military has. Um, th- this is another question. I, well, no, I mean, the, no, the real ahead. thing
2: in ter- terms of this is, you know, the best who's done the persona building, um, you, you know, look beyond government, look at yeah. um, corporate models, look at uh, non-state actor models. So, you know, as a good illustration in the book, we have this back and forth um, in one section of um, Hillary Clinton versus Wendy's. Um, Hillary Clinton is a real person. But she did not come across as real online. And that was because she had a highly um, echoed to U.S. military, highly bureaucratic uh, messaging campaign. Um, as many as 11 different people would weigh in on a single tweet from her. Um, by contrast, Wendy's. Which is not a—it's a hamburger chain. When, you know, may have, Wendy's may have once been a little girl, but it's not right now. <laughs> Wendy's is known as one of the most effective kind of corporate actors online because it's it's viewed as real. And again, it, this is this me saying real. It's not just oh that's nice. It's one of the five attributes that we explore in the book. Of every time something goes viral, every time something wins it has one of these attributes and one is this idea of authenticity and again you can have that kind of back and forth between learning from what a wendy's does versus the hillary clinton uh campaign model to you know that's been one of the challenges of our messaging against saying isis is isis um had a, you know a It it was viewed as more real. Um, It had a model that really leveraged that first in its efforts against its rivals like al-Qaeda and then in its efforts against the coalition.
1: Can I also just add every time Hillary Clinton during the campaign tried to sound culturally relevant or authentic, it really fell on its face and and the um, the. The example I could think of in my head first was, do you remember when she was on the campaign trail and she she said, uh, I don't know who invented Pokemon Go, but I hope that you all Pokemon go to the polls that that <laughs> went viral, but not because of its authenticity. It, it was just like this woman does not know how to come off as a real person.
2: And this again, now we pull back and. Um, it connects to, I mean, kind of wonky with you, a a larger discussion. So the book is, I mean, you know, we've talked about examples from Taylor Swift to Wendy's, but it also blends in, you know, the history of the Blitzkrieg and um, ISIS military operations. But one of the changes that's played out is – Going back to the very first democracies, um, you have writing from Aristotle about, you know, one of the twists of a democracy in ancient Greece is that it's a government of the people, but then you need a new class of a particular kind of person. And Aristotle comes up with the concept of a politician. So it is someone (laughs) who is of the people. They're not a king. They're not a priest. They're of the people. But they have decided – That they are better than the people and that they should be the leader of the people. And so that's created this kind of long – it's both a feature and a contradiction. um, And the politicians have long had to kind of do this balancing act of I'm of you. But um, you know, I, I'm I'm better than you. Well that and that really this, brings you know, us weaves into technology. So like with the early newspapers, you get the, the stories in America of, well, he was born in a log cabin. And then with TV, you get this basically industry of diners in Iowa and New Hampshire that are basically supported by politicians visiting them yep. to try and show that they're real. What social media brought in is now the individual politician? It's them directly. Right. It's not through the media. PR. It's not through the middle. And you know that was um, if you're looking at Trump, even among um, uh, people who uh, this this was from polling, for example, during the Republican nomination. So other Republicans who liked his his rivals, um, you know, whether it's Rubio or Bush or whatever in the polling, even when they said they didn't like his policy, the one attribute that they would say about him is, well, it's, it's, he's real. Um, and his, his authenticity. And so that, um, has created a model that, um, again, whether it was Trump, whether it was to shift over to Junaid Hussein, ISIS's top recruiter, um, whatever that attribute of being viewed as real, of being viewed as authentic is something that, Wins on the web, and in turn, those who are viewed as inauthentic um, lose. But again, what's fascinating about it is, and this comes from the interviews with, you know, again, whether it's tech recruiters to generals to the reality stars, no one is real yeah, online. Okay. It's all performative, right? It's it's a conscious authenticity. So when J- when, when Janae Hussein or Taylor Swift are engaging with a fan, whether it's an ISIS fan or a music fan, they're doing it in knowledge that the world is watching. When Donald Trump is saying things the way he does, he's doing it consciously knowing that he's doing it for a purpose. And that's one of the things, again, that if you look at kind of the military side of it, um, we've uh We've faced a challenge in that kind of approach
0: well i uh, I think there's that debate with filmmakers isn't there that you know whether or not anything on camera can be authentic and real because the moment you have a camera on you you know you're aware of it, you know you're being watched and you behave differently and
2: now we get to the next part of this battle space um what may be even sort of you acting real in quotation marks online we're moving into a space where that imagery can be manipulated changed so we have the challenge of not only do we um, fall within our little own echo chambers where again whether it's um, U.S. military operations in Iraq to um, what you think of uh, Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice, we're in these little echo chambers of each of us have our own truths, our own reality, but now we have the potential of weaving new technology like artificial intelligence and the like in it, where you can literally manipulate that imagery and take things that truly are not real and make them look as if they are real. Um, this is called deep fakes, uh, and this is the idea of creating um, uh, what look like truths. Uh, you know, an image, of uh, video. Um, the examples range from uh, speeches that politicians never gave uh, to um, uh, people appearing in movies that they never starred in um, to we will see that. Weaponized also, so um, images of U.S. soldiers committing an atrocity that they never did, and so that's where kind of the next stage of these battles that looms, and it again points to uh, the need for us to to get a handle of these new rules of the game because we're if 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 this is a new realm, a new domain of war, um, we're in the biplane stage of it, you know, the the weapons, the tactics, they're still early stage, you know, but. ISIS was the first user. The groups that follow are going to get better at it, do more. Um, In turn, you know, another change that looms um, for the operating environment, I think, for this audience in particular, is think of all the changes that have happened with social media so far, whether it's news, politics and war. And only half the world is online right now. (laughs) The other half is still to come. So, you know, the – to circle back that example of the bin Laden raid, um, that happened in a country where at the time it plays out, if I remember the data correctly, um, less than 10 percent of the nation at that point uh, was on social media. That's not the case now in 2018. It's certainly not going to be the case moving forward in 2025. So, you have – all these phenomena are only going to grow, which again means we need to learn about them.
0: I, I know we're probably running short on time, but I, I wanted to get this question in for sure before um, we come to a close. Is uh, This is more of a psychological question than a technological question, but it, it's touched upon in your book, is the notion of when people are confronted with the fact that they are um, propagating false information. I, I think there's something very interesting that happens in people's minds. And I think we've all had um, this experience where someone posts something that's completely ridiculous. I remember someone posting this meme, and it was of the the woman, uh, Dr. Ford, who had accused Kavanaugh of a sexual assault. And it was a picture of her looking like a uh, a, a promiscuous woman in a bikini with like a bottle of champagne in her hand, and, and, and implying that she is a promiscuous woman in, in this and that. And I said, I pointed out, I was like, look, that's not her in the photo. That quote you've thrown on the meme is not real. This isn't real. And I find over and over again when you confront people with that, What they come back with when they're presented with clear evidence is, okay, this particular meme may not be factual, but the point is true. What is happening in people's minds and why is it so hard for people? To, uh, why do they cling so desperately to false information? And we, we just cannot, despite whatever evidence you, you give them, you just can't talk them out of it. It's like this deep-seated, emotional, ideological need to believe in something. Yeah, and that's,
2: you know, this space, we could treat it as if it's a, a technology space, but um, it goes back to, you know, politics and war, they're about humans, they're about us. Um, And this space itself was designed to push those um, mental, you know, be it psychological or emotional buttons, um, the very design of it. uh, You know, so, for example, there is a reason why uh, when a message pops up on um, Facebook, uh, it's in red, um it's in red because that fires the part of your brain that um really wants to make red go away it's not just that you notice it it's you uh, want to make red go away semiotics is what um, that is fires isn't that it fires that sort of anticipation notice that they don't tell you The importance of the message. Uh, You know, it could be um, the most important thing in the world, or it could be uh, an annoying um, person that you barely remember from high school reaching out. But you've got to go there to get it. So, you know, the design of the space um, does that. Uh, And it's the same um, in terms of how we um, interact with uh, conspiracy theories and falsehoods. Um, The more that we are exposed to them, the more we fall prey to them. Um, And that is both you as an individual um, and, you know, all the data shows that if you've posted kind of one falsehood, uh, your sort of defenses are broken down to doing it more and more. Um, Also, scarily, the more you post conspiracy theories, um, the more likely, uh, the more prone you are to extremism. Um, more likely to, to voice um, uh, uh, hate, violence, you name it. There's, there is a connection. Even when the, the, the conspiracy theory is not about politics, it might be um, you know, the anti-vaxxer or the anti-vaccine movement or the flat earth movement. It's, a rabbit it's kind hole. of like if you think of it as like a gateway drug.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but it's also you make everyone else in your network more prone to it. So you're breaking down the defenses of your friends and family. Um, and uh, so there's, you know, there's all of these kind of psychological issues. But it, actually, I want to end on, um, you know, kind of a, a more positive note. Uh, this points to the need for not just national level response. You know, we talked about how we've got to adjust our, our military training doctrine to um, there's models of how the Estonians of the world have developed better defenses um, for their nation without losing their democracy, without compromising their rights. Um, there's things that the, the companies can do, but there also points to what you and I need to do as individuals. And I really like the parallel of public health here, where in public health, each of us, there's a role for government, there's a role for industry but it also comes down to what you and I do and part of that is having an ethic to um not just protect ourselves but protect everyone around us. So for example, I teach my kids um to cover their mouth when they cough. Now, first, I don't say, well, because I teach my kids hygiene, there's no role for government in public health or there's no role for a private industry. There's no role for hospitals. But They in turn rely on me teaching my kids that. but go back to that idea of cover your mouth when you cough in no way, shape or form. Does that defend only you? It's about you taking responsibility for defending everyone else in your network. And it's the same phenomenon when it comes to these issues of disinformation, fake news, falsehoods, we are not just targets of it, trying to break down our own defenses we are also the combatants. We decide whether it goes viral or not. So, you know, to that person, it's not just, hey, this is false. It's, hey, you are responsible for the spreading of that falsehood. And, and you're part of the attack against all of your friends and family. And so that's where, again, we need to, you know, kind of message this as it's not just about defending you. It's a, and not just about defending the nation. It's about defending your friends and family. And, you know, that's hopefully some of the sort of the positive side lessons that comes out of this project is to better equip all of us in that kind of um, battles that are playing out in the very same space that we post, you know, all the good, fun things of social media, be it our um, – birthday party images to uh, great interviews with, with people online.
0: <laughs> Do you think there's a role for, um, let's say, bringing uh, civics classes back to high schools and updating them to teach children, like, look, this is part of your responsibility as a citizen. You know, you you vote, you go to jury duty, maybe you elect to serve in the military, and also stop spreading fake news, please. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely, you know what you're getting at is um, digital literacy. Yeah, and when we look at the other nations that that handle this space really well, they have digital literacy campaigns. They teach in their schools, and not just like at elementary school level, but um, it's also uh, woven into, for example, um, media campaigns and the like. Because, of course, as we all know. Um, it's not the twelve-year-olds that are spreading most yeah. of the conspiracy yeah. online. Uh, it's um, frankly you and my uh, elders. Uh, yeah. I, I joke that baby um, boomers. Uh, Facebook is like the Tide Pods for baby boomers. <laughs> um, but uh, so, but that's what you know. The nations, be they like in Estonia, a Sweden, who've gotten really good at this, unsurprising because they were the first to be targeted yeah. by the Russians of the world. That's what they have. But there's a real. Strange example of um, what's playing out in this. The United States government has helped pay for a digital literacy program in Ukraine to help Ukrainian students better recognize disinformation online. But we don't have that for our own kids. I mean, And it, again, points back to some of the, the, the sort of the strangeness of this space that um, we – Parts of our government recognize the problem and are trying to help better defend other nations, but because of a kind of a dysfunctionality and a partisanship at home, we're more open to being taken advantage of, exploited, et cetera. But again, it points to how we shouldn't throw our hands up and say, you know, there's nothing that we can do. Actually, there are things that we can do. They're proven to work. It's just, are we going to implement them at the national level, at the business level, at our own personal levels?
1: I have a couple of questions before we let you go. Um, you guys because- said last question. <laughs> <and then> you <laughs> if, if, if you have to in, go, if I you have, to, have to go, where we can wrap it up. <laughs> it's not a problem.
2: Let's, let's fire. I'll, I'll, I'll okay. give quick
1: answers to the last Sure. So, so just a really quick one. I, I'm wondering, you know, from everything that we've discussed in this past 45 minutes or so, you know, I, I think it's easy to infer you're not a, a fan of a guy like Alex Jones. But uh, from the libertarian perspective of myself, and, and I think, Jack, on some level, I actually just want to know what you think of, like, the shadow banning of a guy like Alex Jones, where it's like, you know, he's being banned from all of this social media. and Is it a he, good precedent, I guess? Yes, and even being banned from PayPal, which really stops him from being able to, you, you know, just get financial compensation for what he's doing, whether it's fake or not. And, and I do think it sets a pretty crazy precedent of... Uh, you know, who's gonna be banned next from there.
2: So let's let's hit the first thing. Um use the term shadow banning. Shadow banning so there is the conspiracy theory of um oh, my messages are not getting out. Um somehow they're secretly doing something behind the scenes that's shadow banning. And then there is deplatforming, yes, which yeah, is yeah. you are kicked off. Sure. So shadow banning is actually a really good example of The – I'm going to use a kind word – shenanigans that uh, people like Jones and others were pulling off by claiming that there were things being done by secret powers to them, whether it was I'm being shadow banned to more – dangerous to society uh claiming that um mass killings were falsehoods that there were little kid actors um spreading uh right. disinformation about terror campaigns etc cetera, etc cetera. so but let's even be i just you know i'm going to push what i'm pushing back as and maybe you didn't even intend it but that the very idea of shadow
1: ban- no i know you, to be fair we've been shadow banned on some level you know with crate club with with guys who have weapons and then we get flagged for gun sales and you know, I would put that Sorry, in the category of shadow banning. There's,
2: there's the conspiracy theory of shadow banning versus what you were really getting at is deplatforming. You're kicked off the network, you don't have access to the network. Um, and uh, here's my own take on this um, you have a right to free speech, you do not have an inherent right to be part of a privately owned network yeah. and do not have a right to spread falsehood that is dangerous to society on that network. So, it, you know, and, and again, even by the fact that um, Alex Jones cannot even say, well, I have a contract with Facebook or Twitter. I paid them X. No, literally, you didn't pay them anything you are on their network and they get to decide the rules of that network. You still have the right to say what you want. They don't have to let you on their network. Now, what they have chosen to do throughout history, going all the way back to the MySpaces, the Six Degrees, is for the most part, the network's have um, been ambivalent about what's playing out on them. They've not wanted to do what's known as content moderation. They've not wanted to police what people say. But then every um, couple of years, they get pressure from two directions. They get pressure from the other users, the other customers of that network, saying this is something that um, if you keep allowing this, we're going to leave and then the second is the threat of government intervention. So the very first time there was content moderation, it was over um, something like uh, uh, child pornography. Basically, the the users of the early networks say, you know what, we don't like that this is in this space. If you don't clean it up, we might leave. And government is saying, guess what, we're going to intervene. So there's this is what's played out. And initially, it was um, ones that everyone could agree on, seemingly, like child pornography. Then after 9-11, it moved into things like, for example, um, uh, terrorist videos. And initially it was terrorist videos of um, uh, beheading, um, IED attacks, soldiers dying. And so the companies go after that. Then it is, well, not just violent imagery, it's inspiration of mass killing, inspiration of extremism. And that was an easy enough, seemingly issue when it was something like Al-Qaeda. Then it grows a little bit thornier when it's, for example, incidents like Charlottesville. Um, and so there's basically been this kind of um, continual back and forth. And we're seeing you know, kind of what I'm getting at is the companies, um, they've more and more taken on a political role. Uh, That reflects the idea that they're running what are, again, these battlefields of political debate, but also with real effect on real battlefields. So my own personal take on this is, again, um, this is – there are actors online who – you have a right to free speech. You have a right even um, to lie. The platform doesn't have to allow you to be a danger to the broader society – and because you don't have a contractual relationship with them, they have the right to boot you. So um, in the case of Jones, they had a policy. He violated the policy. But I want to hit something else because it circles back to something that's really crucial to the broader um, discussion. What was fascinating, is, and we now we have the data on it, is in the Russian um, campaigns, they did not just inject disinformation into our own body politic – Uh, the fake ads and the things like that, they also using both their bot accounts and sock puppet accounts um, would retweet. They would try and um, elevate the discussion of certain actors within our own discourse. And now you can literally lay out the data and see who was it that Russia wanted their voices magnified as a way of harming the United States. And you have this very small number of what are known as super spreaders they're basically sort of toxic voices that have a larger effect than the than the rest of kind of the general populace and by several orders of magnitude it was figures like alex jones the people behind pizzagate again circling back to one of the prior questions it was remarkable that the russians identified the worst conspiracy theorists as the best way to harm America, so I don't feel bad about those folks being deplatformed. They can still do what they well, he can still run out in the street and yell at people, but I don't feel bad that um, you know the companies decided they gave him a set of rules and said, "You violated the rules. You're off."
0: Uh, that uh I actually have that written down on my piece of paper here to, that I was going to ask you about the the murky and interesting relationship between Breit, uh, Breitbart infowars and RT but I think people will have to go and read your book and <laughs> sort through some of that on their own and draw their own conclusions that's a that's a whole other can of worms uh,
1: maybe we can do another interview sometime in the future and get yeah, into some of these subjects and the last really quick thing I said I had one last thing was because I, I mentioned this at the beginning just if you can give us a quick brief of what new America is since you're a senior fellow there so
2: new america is a think tank we're a non-governmental um uh, non-partisan non-profit organization we basically wrestle with the questions that happen when policy and technology come crashing together so you have people writing books reports um, and articles and they're on everything from, you know, what's the future of the internet to we have a team that's working on the future of war. So for example, the future of war team, uh, has everything from, uh, uh Historians, a recently retired Army officer is actually writing the Army's um, official history of doctrinal change since um, uh, 9-11, to um, we have uh, scientists, to we have lawyers, to we have former Air Force acquisition officers, to we have former members of uh, the community that's in this audience, a former member of Navy SEAL Team 6, for example. And so everyone's essentially wrestling with these questions of, and the Future of War team, what will happen next in this space. Overall, the mission of the organization is um, to basically help us understand change and us defined as government, media,
1: and the wider public. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Once again, the book is Like War, the Weaponization of Social Media. He's the co-author of the book. Uh, You could follow Peter on Twitter or PW on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And the website is pwsinger.com. Uh, Thanks again so much for coming on. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah, I Take really care.
1: appreciate your time today. Thanks, Peter. Okay. All right. And this will be up tomorrow, and uh, cool. I'll be in touch when it is.
0: All right. Thank you. Take care, thank- guys. All right. Have a good afternoon.
1: Okay. Interesting stuff there. I uh, yeah. uh, I will be the first to say, and people might be like, why didn't you push back on him a little bit more? Uh, You know, because I I don't feel like what we do is like a split-screen debate show. We like to give people a platform to get their work out there. Uh, I did not agree with him on on everything, to be completely honest. Um, Whenever we talk about the deplatforming of people, I totally separate the constitutional issue of it with just my personal feelings towards it. What they're doing to people like Alex Jones is completely constitutional, completely legal. Yeah, yeah. I've never said anything um, different, that, that it's violating his free speech. It's not violating his free speech. The government is not putting him in jail or anything like that. But I actually do think it sets a scary precedent on the, on the other end of... I don't like anyone dictating what is the dangerous narrative, what is fake news. I'd like people to you know self-educate on on cross-checking sources and that type of thing and knowing what is real, what is fake. But even when you talked about, you know, educating kids on this type of thing, we all have our own personal bias. And a left-wing teacher is going to have a very different view of what Uh, is fake news, what is legitimate than than what my view is. Speaking
0: of bias, look at the assumption you you just made. You just jumped to the conclusion that the teacher teaching the class is left-wing and that they're going to teach the kids with a a left-wing agenda in a civics
1: class. That, well, here's the thing. And so why
0: have I, education at all? Let's not, get rid but, of
1: it because it's all going to be politically biased. I'd I love to change the whole, the restructure of the whole thing, but that's a whole different subject. But I spoke about this with you prior to us recording. Um, the people who run, you know, the main voices behind Twitter – Facebook are all pretty openly left wing. We know Mark Zuckerberg is not banning liberals on the platform. I gave you the example before we recorded of, you know, Kathy Griffin putting up the Trump head. She wasn't banned from anywhere after that. I mean, I don't, they, they didn't I don't de- platform have the, her anywhere.
0: After I don't that. have the whole history of who's been banned and who hasn't. Um, there are, I, I mean, I'll tell you on Twitter, there are some pretty prominent neo Nazis who have not been banned and like nothing has happened to them. Yeah. It, it seems to me that it's a, a question of, when they reach a certain level of notoriety... Like Alex Jones, Alex Jones would have coasted by fine, but he just deliberately courted so much controversy, and he got what he wanted. He pushed up into the national debate. He was on television all the time. People are talking about him, and now suddenly the spotlight is on this guy. And there are enough people pissed off about the stuff he was saying that you know the, that Sandy Hook never happened, that the the parents of dead children or crisis actors, people just got fed up with it, and that that's kind of the consumer or customer pushback against these companies. that are like, you got to do something about this. You can't let this idiot run rampant like this.
1: But every – I'd say half the country, as in the people who voted for Trump, or at least half the people who voted, were equally as shocked and offended by Kathy Griffin holding up the Trump head, saw it as a violent threat to, towards our president – and nothing was done uh, you know to her.
0: I mean in my and- personal opinion yes that was that picture is inappropriate and it's not something I would ever do or advocate. But there's a difference between that one dumb picture and Alex Jones is nonstop ranting about how nine eleven is an inside job, about how the CIA is out to kill all of us, and about how they're putting chemicals in the water that make the frogs gay.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's I, completely
0: I just, fucking different.
1: That's like apples and oranges. My question, though, is always: you know, who dictates what can be deplatformed? What can? And I know it's the owners of these companies who do happen to mostly be left wing. If you look at the prominent people. Um, and then, like I mentioned to him, I didn't really go into it in detail, but with our own company, uh, Crate Club has really been screwed over by these people who, you know, it you know this. It went from, you can't have pictures in the, you can't have video in the ad of a guy holding a gun. All right, we won't have it. You can't have video in the ad of a guy holding a knife. All right, the way this guy is holding a flashlight towards the camera, very intimidating. Uh, you know, that it, was... I, I mean,
0: I, I am concerned on... on uh, I say I'm very concerned, honestly, because what, what these social media platforms are doing politics aside, just remove partisan politics for a moment is that it is a global wide social engineering project. Yeah. I mean, let's just call it what it is. And I I think Peter was acknowledging that as well, that these companies are, these are mega corporations. They're transnational in nature. Um, They, uh, I mean, they have a profound influence on our cognitive process. Uh, They have a profound impact on elections, on how we view political issues, how we view policy issues and all of these things. So, yeah, you have to call it what it is at a certain point. These companies are involved in social engineering and um, they respond to what customers want. They respond to requests from our government because none of these companies want to get slapped with antitrust suits. So the government tells them to do something. They're probably going to comply um, and that, that is concerning. I mean, there there is the whole, you know, George Orwell <laughs> 1984 complex happening. Um, it, it just removed the partisan politics from the conversation for a moment. And I mean, these companies have a, a, a strong hand in engineering how we think. And that's a concern regardless. And it's something that we have to think. And um, I, I think that is why... Yeah, you, um, parents have to educate their children um, about social media, and and I think there is a role for you know the public school system to teach kids about you know when I was a kid, I mean I remember they would talk to us about reading the newspaper and how to analyze the news and how yeah. to, how to think about claims and are Which they is true, very different or they not? now? Um, and and kids need to be taught to think the same way about what they see on the internet and what they see on social media. Um, you know, Peter was talking about how we're going into an era now where uh, clips, new, uh, video clips are going to be outright faked, um, as in they're completely false from top to bottom. But what we've seen, what we're already seeing is the, you'll see clips that are, um, video that is shot in one place, but then it's presented online as something else. So I, I, I can think of, that's going to be
1: crazy. I can think of a few,
0: a few examples off the top of my head. There was one clip. It was, um, there is a, it was an economic, um, depression an economic crisis in France, um, in the early 2000s and there were people rioting in the streets about it. And that clip was put on Facebook and it was portrayed as these are Muslims rioting in the streets of Paris and flipping over cars and burning them. And that's just completely not what was happening there. So we're already seeing those kinds of things. Or um, in South Africa, there's a lot of clips making the rounds um, and I see them on on social media as well, showing atrocities that didn't even happen in South Africa. And it's what Evan Barlow was talking about when we had him on. Um, so yeah, it's a mess. And kids need to be taught, and, and adults too. I mean, baby boomers are—they kill me. They're like fake. <laughs> new, they're like fake news yeah. machines. But they're kind of on both, the left and right. They're yeah. kind. Of, they're kind of a lost cause. I don't know what we can do about them. <laughs> but uh, but you know, um, our kids just need to be taught better about how to discern fact from fiction.
1: I wish I could find – so I'm trying to find this clip, and I don't know if I will, but Jenk uh, Uyghur from Young Turks debated Tucker Carlson about a lot of this stuff at Politicon. And I'm not like a viewer of Tucker Carlson. I don't really watch any televised news. But he made some really interesting points about, you know, what is hate speech. And, yeah. you know, there was, there's never been this precedent set that – I mean, I think anybody who's read the Constitution studies it, the, the – the freedom of speech was meant to protect unpopular speech or else we wouldn't need it. And he spoke about, like, do we really have free speech now? He's like, this is really setting a precedent where... You say something online that people don't like. You can't really work a regular job. You'll be you'll be fired. That, that's
0: true. But the the United States government doesn't protect you from being socially ostracized. No, but it's
1: it's setting a different. We're in a very different world, basically. I think than we were twenty years ago. We are. Ten years ago, we are. I wish I could find the clip. We, I'm probably going to find it once we we've, stop recording. We've talked but it was about great.
0: we've talked about um, people trying to um, engage in deplatforming in the past on this podcast, and you know how people will, there there are like these. little... Little cliques—they're like cults, especially on Twitter, where they will they'll Twitter mob you if they don't like you know your opinion about something. Yeah, and but uh, that but that's not a First Amendment issue. No, it's not. But people can go and do stupid things if they
1: want. I I agree, and and you can still engage in your free speech and be off of all these social networks. Um, But yeah, no. uh, One of the interesting things, you know, when we were talking last show with Benny about the transgender issue. it's becoming, um, you know, if you have a certain opinion on that issue, you're in the hate speech category. And stuff like that does, does bother me. I, I certainly don't have a problem with any grown adult doing what they want to do, but we should be allowed to have a debate on it. without. Yeah,
0: absolutely. But we also need to stop being snowflakes collectively. And like somebody says, you know, I think you're a bad person because you said that. And it's like, well, okay. You yeah. can think I'm a bad person? Like but, I'm not going to whine about how you're trying to shut down my speech. Like I'm a grown man. I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and I accept the repercussions of that.
1: But I am worried about the deplatforming of people because they have a different view on this. You know, it's it's not all people. It goes from people who think the kids in Sandy Hook were child actors or yeah. you know, whatever. Crazy yeah, what's, yeah, what's the next step yeah. exactly? What, does
0: it does it go against like say all gun owners?
1: Yeah, and we start to ostracize anyone Which John owns Robb a gun. talked about. Yeah is, yeah,
0: is that something that's going to happen? I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next decade is it going to be like you saw this um bifurcation in televised news um you know cnn was kind of a middle of the road they leaned left but they were more center then what we saw was msnbc and fox news and now you have your left-wing
1: news and you have your right-wing news and cnn has gotten pretty left yeah they they, they they have
0: um are we going to see this with social media yeah at some point Are you going to see, you know, some right wing billionaire fund their own social media site that's a safe space for conservatives or, you know, whatever we're
1: going to call them, right wingers? It's it's hard to say, because at this point, I want to say that Facebook is a monopoly and Google and all these are monopolies, however, being objective about this. I do remember in middle school in the early 2000s having a history teacher talk about how Microsoft had a monopoly yep. and Internet Explorer you know there was no I remember, competition I remember for
0: it. Uh, Bill Gates was pulled in front of Congress if
1: I remember correctly yeah this was the time where and th-
0: there were some repercussions they had to d- they had to stop doing some things or split up part of the company didn't they I don't
1: I'm remember sorry
0: that. I'm sorry I don't remember exactly a yeah, long time ago <laughs> well that's the,
1: the great thing about doing a podcast is just spur of the moment ideas and, and this isn't well researched or anything but this was at the time where the most popular Mac was. Remember those like they those billboards of you can get this in pink and orange and all these crazy oh, yeah, colors. Yeah. And no one was buying it. So this was long before the iPod, long before, you know, the uh, it, it had MacBook something. Or the it iMac. had something
0: to do with how they were bundling Windows with um, with Internet Explorer. I or that's so what they I were was saying, like, if you buy this uh, operating system, then it's implied that you have to use the the browser. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't have my, like, Wikipedia facts at the top of my head, but this is something that, yeah, pre- uh, some past incident that'd be interesting to, to delve into a little bit.
1: Yeah, so part of me wants to say that these social networks have a monopoly, that there's never going to be any competition, but then the other part of me wants to say, you know, I, people believe that about Windows, about, uh, you know, other things.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll reach a point, and, um... Some of these social media platforms are, are destined to die. Um, you know, I don't think Twitter is going to be around in ten years. Really? Way, no, I don't think it's going to be around the way it is today. Um, Facebook will be around, I think. Um, Instagram, I don't know. I, I mean, some of them, some of them are very popular, uh, but I, I don't know what their longevity is going to be. You know, some of them I think will turn into like
1: MySpace. Well, yeah, we'll see. Um, You know what? There's two news articles I just want to bring up real quick, but before I do, be sure to check out Crate Club, which I've been talking about a little bit. The long-anticipated collaboration watch we did with NFW Watches is in in the next premium crate. We have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room and the guys are currently working on bringing you 100% custom products in 2019. Uh, everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. It's the club for men, by men. Uh, You can check that all out at crateclub.us. Once again, that's crateclub.us. Everything is currently shipping. Jack and I actually got a look over at the warehouse, like live feed, which was pretty cool. Uh, for you, dog owners. Actually,
0: I got my crate yesterday, uh, nice. and I'm not sure if it's the the category of it. Is it the pro crate? It's the smaller one, but it had a whole bunch of stuff in it. It had a sunglasses case. Um, what did it have? Some bottle openers. It had uh there's a there's a spear a fishing spear nice. in there that I haven't put together. Oh, what else? There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. That's cool. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's, that's great to see, man. They're doing an awesome job. Um, for your dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. You've heard me talk about it. We've partnered with Kuna who has a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom-built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S.-sourced, all-natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet but also promote being active with your dog. So whether we're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's Kuna.Dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And I know Benny was saying you got to get signed up for Kuna because you have a dog. I unfortunately (laughs) don't anymore. Uh, And then also as a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, and much more. Again, you can watch this content on the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. Uh, the app is up, specopschannel.com, and the SoftRep Radio Android app is now up. So we're on Android, we're on iPhone, all that. And I'm going to take one last sip of this as this is running out. But when you know it's funny? My I co- got my coffee. I killed my coffee, so someone is gonna say, because it always happens on Twitter to be, why the hell are you drinking Starbucks, Ian? You should be drinking black rifle coffee only. I <laughs> WibTard. <laughs> you, you know what's funny? Um so Starbucks always gets blasted as this um like super left-wing corporation. They're definitely left wing, but they're not uh anti-veteran. And I remember them in Black Rifle. We're having, like, a whole thing. They actually hire a lot of veterans, but they they also were hiring Syrian you know, refugees, and somehow this got painted as, why can't you give those jobs to vets? And it's not a one or the other yeah, issue. Yeah. They they do both. And I do know this because I worked for Senator Bill Bradley, who's, like, high up on the board at Starbucks. And when I say they're left-leaning, yeah, they're pretty open about that. But they, they're also very veteran-friendly. I, and I guess it's because of those – t-shirts that came out i don't know if it was grunt style or something or it was like you know vets before refugees and stuff like that and these are two very separate issues and i do hate how that gets put into one category somehow that's
0: that's really some mouth breathing type shit um I don't know. I've gone on my whole rant before about how I, I like. I'm not concerned with the company's politics. I, I don't drink Starbucks coffee unless I have to. But not. I love not, Starbucks. Not because of politics. I just don't like the taste of their coffee. It's not very good.
1: It's the only coffee that like. Anytime I have any other coffee, it just doesn't do it for me. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah, I, I mean I'm strictly Starbucks.
0: Well, I mean we're kind of spoiled here. I mean in New York City, you know, there's people, you know, all kinds of little coffee shops making their own coffee. So, but
1: they're just never as good in my to me. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, I think Star-
0: Starbucks coffee just tastes like burned to me. It's- I love it.
1: And I've heard other people say that too, man. Um, the last things I want to mention, I saw the cover of the New York Times today, the report of China, you know, they, they're saying that they are tapping the president's iPhone And he's being urged to switch over to something other than an iPhone, but he continues to use it. So that's definitely of concern that they're hearing his private conversations. During
0: the Obama administration, there's a story about how Yankee White had been compromised, which is the uh, classified communication system that the White House uses um, that had been compromised
1: by the Russians. And that story disappeared really quick. Don't hear
0: much about that.
1: And there's an article up on the news rep by Joe Lefebvre, who we've had on, about China and Palestine signing a new trade agreement and strengthening political ties, which I thought was interesting um, because that definitely shows China getting more in bed with countries that were hostile towards. I also do wonder, you know, Palestine isn't exactly like an industrious country. You know, what are they even trading? Uh, A
0: good question. I, I don't know anything about this trade agreement, so I'm going to have to go and do some research myself. But, yeah, uh
1: article's up though at thenewsrep.com. China so. is spreading its wings and its
0: tentacles everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, that's it for us, man. Uh. We'll be back actually Wednesday with episode four fucking hundred. I can't believe it. It's insane. That's wild. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I won't give away we're having on, but I think it'll be pretty cool. Um, I think we'll get some great stories out of it. And please do, like, like I said, we use this show as a platform for anybody um, that, that we think has something interesting out that the audience will love. So please do pick up Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media by P.W. Singer. And then you should look at the covers. I don't remember. Who's the other co-author?
0: Um, it Um, is Emerson T
1: brooking yes we were originally going to have both of them on um but i think emerson was tied up Uh, but it was a great interview i
0: I read the book i mean it is a good um concise history of this emerging topic that like i said we haven't fully come to grips with um so if you want to learn about the weaponization of social media and read a more sort of um i don't necessarily want to say it's purely academic it's not like reading a white paper but they do have all their source citations because if you're writing about fake news you want to do your homework right um so it it does give a good history about the transfer the transmission of information throughout history and how it can be weaponized um with the focus on today so definitely give it a read if you're interested in that topic
1: absolutely check it out we're out we'll be back next episode episode 400
0: to soft rep radio new episodes up every wednesday and friday follow the show on instagram and twitter at soft rep
1: radio